Hey, what happened to my stereo? It's all smashed up. That's right. Now, it looks like it was broken during shipping, and I insured it for $400. But you were supposed to get me a refund. You can't get a refund. Your warranty expired two years ago. So we're going to make the post office pay for my new stereo now? It's a write-off for them. How is it a write-off? They just write it off. Write it off what? Jerry, all these big companies, they write off everything. You don't even know what a write-off is. Do you? No, I don't. But they do. And they're the ones writing it off. My guest today is my colleague at AEI, Alan Viard. He is a resident scholar and economist, uh, where his research focuses on the federal tax code and budget, and he joins me today to discuss uh, all things taxes, especially the tax reform package passed last December. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right. So as we are recording this podcast, we're about seven months out from the passage of the big 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act. Perhaps more importantly, we're only days out from the second quarter GDP report, which people have been focusing on uh, lately as a as, as, as sign that, yeah, the tax cuts are working. A lot of analysts think that instead of getting the usual 2% GDP report, it might be 4%, it might be 5%. I know there are a lot of Republicans who are excited about this report, thinking that will show the tax cuts are working. Other people say, well, no, you know that, 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 that's not what it will mean. Uh, the tax cuts haven't been in effect for too long. So what can, what can we con- conclude seven months out about these tax cuts, even if we see the economy sort of surging? We can conclude very little, I think, is the short answer to that question. And I, it's always disturbing to me as an economist to see people fixate on short-run uh, movements in the economy and then use those to prove that some policy either is working or is not working. Uh, but you've described very well exactly how people are talking about this. And I, it's both supporters and opponents. Uh, supporters have said, yeah, maybe we'll see better GDP growth. Opponents are pointing to, you know, say we don't see wage growth. And none of this really gives us much insight because there just hasn't been enough time for the effects uh, that we're interested in to occur. Maybe it's worth just taking a second to say what effects economists would hope to see from a corporate tax rate cut, which uh, for these purposes, I think, is the most important aspect of uh, of, of the law. Economists would expect that with a lower corporate tax rate, there would be more investment in the United States. Businesses might invest more overall, but they would also be more likely to invest in this country rather than overseas. Then as there's more capital in the United States, uh, you would see labor become more productive. Employers, seeing that workers are more productive, would be interested in hiring more of them at the going wage. They would compete against each other to hire those workers, which would bid up the wages that they have to pay. And so you would see, in the end, an increase in capital, an increase in output or GDP, and an increase in wages. But all of this would occur over a period of time. The investment effects would come first, which would gradually build up the capital stock, and then you would see labor productivity and wages rising more gradually. Just as a side note, all of this would occur from corporate self-interest. Corporates, corporations would invest more in the United States because there, it would be more profitable for them to do so with a lower tax rate on the profit 
profits from those investments. And then they would pay higher wages because they would have to uh, as they're bidding against other employers for the more productive uh, workers. So none of this relies on companies just saying, oh, we got some money from the government. Let's give it to workers. You know, if that was what was going on, of course, that could happen very, very quickly. Uh, But we're looking at a more durable and a more gradual process and one that is rooted uh, solidly in corporate self-interest. Right. And, and, is it, and is it just that there's money flowing back uh, from, from overseas? They have all this money you know, stashed overseas. Now the rate's lower here, so the money's coming back. Or is it also, is it also that you know, they're, they're, they're just paying lower taxes here, so like their after-tax income is higher, so they, they can invest more of it? The key issue is that the companies will pay lower taxes on the future profits from the investments they make today. Right. So one of the mistakes that is often made both by supporters and opponents is they talk about how corporations will use their tax savings. But that's not where the wage increase or the investment increase comes from. Corporations don't invest more because they've received tax savings on their past investments. Instead, they invest more because taxes have been reduced on the investments they're making today. In other words, they make investments uh, in order to obtain larger tax savings in the future. So it's a forward it's a forward looking. It's a forward looking thing and so it's really not, you know, it's possible in some cases that just giving a corporation money might make it invest a little bit more if the corporation has profitable investment opportunities on its plate and for some reason it can't borrow and it doesn't have very much internal cash, but that's not the main thing we're talking about because that's probably relatively unimportant. We assume that most corporations have the cash on hand that they can make whatever investments are profitable. And so the key effect of the tax cut is not to increase the amount of cash, but instead to make more investments profitable on an after-tax basis than previously were profitable. So there's some investment out there where the company would have said, this investment is really not worth making if I can only keep 65% of the profits and I have to pay a 35% rate. I have plenty of cash. I could make the investment. It's just not worthwhile. And then you have a rate cut to 21%, the corporations, well, now I get to keep 79% of whatever profits this investment is going to yield. And so there's some investments there on the margin where the company is going to say, well, now that actually does look like a good deal. And I've always had the cash on hand that I could make that investment, but now it's actually worthwhile for me to do it. It's in my self-interest, and so I will do it. And you see companies throughout the economy doing that, and then that leads to the other effects I mentioned, Work, labor becomes more productive, workers are more valuable to companies, companies will try to hire more of them, and that will force up the wages. And you mentioned one thing in passing, which was the money coming back. And I think that's actually worth just... You mean, you mean the money that is supposedly just going toward buybacks and well, so the, dividends, which is the criticism. That, that, that money is just flowing right back out into the economy. These, these, these companies aren't going to do anything with it that would, even down the road, help workers. Right. So that's the uh, a big uh, complaint that's being made by opponents of the tax cut. And so I think, unfortunately, supporters have kind of set themselves up uh, for this uh, misconception because a lot of them, a lot of the supporters of last year's tax law really touted the fact that it was going to allow tax-free repatriation, as they call it, of the money that foreign subsidiaries were holding Um, The law says you have to pay a one-time mandatory tax on that money, but then it can come back to the parent company's 
uh, in the U.S. Uh, with no further tax liability. And we do expect a very large amount of money to be paid by foreign subsidiaries to U.S. parents as dividends now that there's no tax barrier on it. And there's about $2.6 trillion, give or take, that this could happen to, and probably a pretty good chunk of it. This will We will see these dividend payments. And so a lot of people supporting the, this provision have said, oh, this is fantastic. This is great because this money has been trapped overseas. Right. It is going to come back to the United States right. and it will then be invested or paid in wages. And there's just multiple flaws here. And first of all, a lot of that money is sitting in U.S. bank accounts or invested in U.S. Treasury securities. It's not really overseas. It just happens to be the property of a foreign subsidiary company. And when the dividend payment occurs, it means that money is transferred from the foreign subsidiary's bank account to the U.S. parent company's bank account. So you might say the U.S. parent company now has more cash available to it. But like I said a minute ago, for most companies, and certainly for these kinds of companies who have lots of cash already, just having more money is not going to make them invest more. So I think that most economists would take the view and do take the view that if you look only at this repatriation provision, only at this payment of dividends by foreign subsidiaries, that we really expect to see no noticeable investment effect from that. Uh, and, th- and what we would expect instead is that now that the U.S. parent company has this cash that they probably don't have any need for, they would, of course, flow that out to their shareholders in dividends or stock buybacks or maybe to their creditors by paying down debt. And so we don't expect to see investment effects from that. We do expect to see it from the lower corporate rate. We also expect to see it from the expensing provision that's in there saying you can write off your equipment costs immediately instead of depreciating them over a period of years. But because there's going to be a lot of money coming, being paid to the, to the U.S. parent companies in a very short period of time, you have to expect that even if there's additional investment going on, thanks to the rate cut and the expensing, that a lot of the money that's coming from the foreign subsidiaries would be used for stock buybacks or dividends. Right. That's perfectly predictable. It does tell you that the uh, flow of money from the foreign subsidiaries is not boosting investment, but that was never expected to boost investment by economists. It doesn't really tell you yet whether the corporate rate cut or the expensing is doing uh, is doing right. anything. So, we sh- so at this point, we shouldn't really see higher wages from this tax cut. We really shouldn't see, you know, more productivity growth, right. more capital investment, you know, business spending. All that might well happen, but we shouldn't expect to see it seven months we, we should not. Now, the odd twist that, of course, has happened is that around 600 companies have announced one-time bonuses or, in some cases, fewer cases, ongoing wage increases or fringe benefit improvements or something of that sort, and have said that these steps they're taking are due either partly or completely to the tax cut. Well, I guess it's unavoidable and certainly it's understandable that politicians who support the tax cut would, in fact, jump on this. I mean, this seems like great news and an easy way to say, oh, this tax cut is working. But of course, that can't be right because, yes, we would not see and we have not seen an increase in worker productivity yet. So the economic channel to see higher wages, you know, just isn't in operation yet. And I think that that touting these bonuses has really backfired on supporters of the uh, corporate rate cut because you know they go out and say oh these you know look at all these workers getting bonuses and then opponents say well actually it's only about you know 
maybe 5 million or 7 million, uh, 5 million workers, give or take, who have gotten these. So it's only a couple percent of the workforce. And the magnitude of these bonuses when you add them up is much smaller than the buybacks. And so if you're trying to tell us... And, and the overall wage growth numbers aren't showing some sort of rapid right, acceleration. They're really and they, not. And, and, in fact, and they there shouldn't. Was, right. In fact, there was this article... Uh, the, I mean, the government numbers show not some sort of rapid that wages continue to sort of, you know, move move along as they have, but not not a big acceleration. That's right. And there was a uh, a study from some company called Payscale, which actually showed wage growth uh, has slowed. So and so then you saw the obvious article buybacks up, wage growth yeah. has slowed. Assuming you even believe these Payscale numbers, therefore tax cut has failed. Yeah. No, it's really uh, striking, and I think it would be better. I mean, I can say this, I guess, easily as an economist at a think tank. And maybe if I was in Congress and trying to sell a bill and trying to face the voters, I, I would you know, have to say, so, you know, I'd be pressured or feel compelled to say something different. But I mean, I guess I have the luxury of just kind of looking back and saying, hey, what are the economics here? And what you ideally would like is that from the beginning, the corporate rate cut should have been marketed for what it is, a tool that can build up the U.S. capital stock and gradually raise worker productivity and deliver somewhat higher levels of wages um, over a period of time. But of course, it was instead, I think, marketed either implicitly or explicitly in a lot of cases as something that would just, you know, give companies money, which they would then do good things with. And then when the bonuses occurred, you know, oh, here's the good things being done. And then, of course, the inevitable blowback of, well, a lot of companies are not doing the quote unquote good things. They're doing the quote unquote bad things of the stock buybacks right. and the dividends. So and you said over, you said over a period that, you know, this should help over, an, over a period of time. And that period of time may not necessarily match up well with the election cycle yes, uh, yes. of politicians. Right. It could be as small as, you know, economy, two years. The economy operates on its own uh, timetable. It's kind of hard to know what time frame we should expect to see these effects on. The crucial question, again, is just how rapidly the capital stock is built up in the United States. And so, I mean, on the one hand, you could expect to see that process begin almost immediately. I mean, the day after the tax cut is adopted, companies should start rethinking what they want to do with their investments. And so they may say, well, that you know plant we were planning to put abroad, maybe we should put it in the United States instead, now that we can keep 79% instead of 65% of its uh, payoffs. Uh, but you know, then how long does it take you know, for that plant to actually be built? Um, and you know, how long does it take other companies to start, you know, rethinking their plans, both, you know, foreign companies and American companies. And so you'd presumably expect that to occur, you know, over a period of years. And then the investment increase, I mean, each year's investment increase, you know, adds to the existing capital stock. But of course, you know, it's one year's flow of investment is not that large relative to the existing stock of capital that's been built up, you know, over many years. So the change in the size of the capital stock, which is what drives the labor productivity and then drives the wages, you know, is certainly going to be a gradual process. I mean, maybe this is a good moment to make another point, which is just that we're unfortunately never going to be able to know with absolute certainty what the effects of this tax law are. I mean, were. there's a lot of, I mean, at any one point, you have a lot of changes in the economy. Indeed. You have, you know, not only do you have the tax, you have, you know, interest rates are going up, the, do the dollar's moving, there's regulations being cut, there's regulations being added. There's a lot of things, and then to tease out the impact. It's, it's very difficult to do it for a single provision like the uh, tax law, you know, to look at a single episode and say, oh, this is what the tax law did. Because what you have to compare in principle is the reality 
that we've observed with the tax law in place to the hypothetical alternative in which a tax law was never adopted, but everything else was the same. Well, obviously, we can't avoid, we, we can't observe that, uh, you know, path not taken. Uh, so we really can't say with, you know, definitive certainty what this law did or what any law did. I mean, this was an issue, too, with the stimulus uh, in 2009. It's an issue with the tax cuts that were adopted in 2001 and 2003. I mean, it's an issue with, you know, regulations and social policies and all the things that human beings do that we never know for sure what would have happened if we had done something different than what we actually did. Now, what we can do, of course, is to use statistical analysis to look at many different episodes and to try well, to statistically control for other is, variables. Is this, when you think like, here's how it should work, here is the mechanism, is that based on models uh, and uh, on, you know, you know, statistical analysis? How much of it is based on looking at past, trying to draw, again, conclusions from past episodes? Is this sort of a theoretical thing? Or you can say, well, gee, we, we saw this, this is what happened before, all those things sort of linked. Yeah, so it's not purely theoretical. I mean, on the one hand, it does start with an absolutely solid grounding in economic theory. I mean, it just assumes that corporations, by and large, will act to try to maximize after-tax profits, that they, you know, will be self-interested. Right. And if they are, then it's pretty pretty straightforward that at least if you hold interest rates uh, constant, that providing this more favorable tax treatment of new investments in the United States will cause there to be more new investments in the United States. I mean, interestingly, even some opponents of the uh, tax cut, some staunch opponents, have recognized that the basic logic really holds. I mean, Paul Krugman, the 2008 Nobel economics laureate, is a prime example. He's an absolutely staunch opponent of the corporate rate cut. He's denounced it you know, in the strongest possible terms. He does not think that it will yield large investment effects. But he has said in a couple of his columns that, you know, the basic logic is this will encourage companies to bring money to the United States. He said there's probably something to that, something but not very much. And he said all else equal, having, you know, a lower uh, cost of capital from lower taxes, you know, probably will increase investment, but it's not a very effective way uh, to do it. And the effects will probably be pretty small. And so I think that indicates uh, what I think is a basic uh, feature of how economists uh, view this matter, that there's pretty broad agreement on the mechanisms at work, but also pretty sharp disagreement about the magnitudes of the effects, and then how to resolve some of the policy trade-offs. I mean, for example, even if you think that a corporate rate cut will boost investment, is it worth it when it's going to deprive the federal government of revenue that would then need to be you know, made up in, in some other way? So we start from a theory right. that is pretty widely accepted, but it's not just pure theory, because economists have long studied what determines the amount of investment that corporations do. Right. They've looked at time series of why corporations invest more in some years than others. They've looked at why corporations invest in some assets instead of different assets. They've looked at why some corporations invest more than others. And the weight of the statistical evidence indicates that corporations do respond to how the after-tax profitability of investment compares to interest rates. And so I think by looking at those, you know, large number of events and statistically controlling for other factors that may be affecting investment is really a better way to answer these questions than to say, oh, here was a law passed that cut the corporate tax rate, but investment at a certain time period later was lower than it was at some other time, and therefore it must not have worked. Or it was higher, and therefore it must have succeeded. Right, that's not particularly sophisticated. Yeah, it's just, you know, so, I mean, both supporters and opponents just too easily say, oh, let's do a simple comparison like that. Well, I mean, there is sort of, there is the all else equal, and everything's not going to be equal. One thing that won't be equal is that most analyses think that this plan, the tax plan overall, will greatly worsen the national debt. Yes. Now, now, 
isn't that going to be a constraint? It is. On, on sort of the growth potential yep. of this tax cut. How significant will it be? It could be very significant. Um, there's, I think, two areas of uncertainty on that. We know that this will add uh, to, the, to the debt. The tax law as it stands will add somewhere from a trillion to a trillion and a half to the debt, depending on how uh, much economic growth feedback there is over the next uh, several years. But then there are provisions in the tax law that expire, which are likely to be made permanent. And, and so that will uh, produce further revenue loss if that happens. The uncertainty is, I think, two things. One is when the federal debt goes up, how much does that drive up interest rates? And I think we have pretty good grounds to think that it does drive up interest rates, both statistical and theoretical grounds again. And that's going to cut into the investment boost. Higher interest rates will will sap some of that um, uh, strengthening of investment that you otherwise uh, would see. Uh, the other uncertainty is just, I mean, how will future Congresses and presidents respond to the existence of this additional debt. I mean, if, it, if they respond relatively quickly by adopting tax increases or spending cuts to service that debt, then the impact on interest rates and investment um, is smaller than it otherwise would be. But on the other hand, if they just let that debt continue to compound for an extended period of time, then you're going to see a much more harmful feedback. In some models in the really long run, you know, the, the tax cut could end up actually reducing investment on balance because the debt buildup could more than outweigh the boost uh, from, the, uh, from the lower rate. Right. I mean, I was just looking at uh, one, one model uh, put together by uh, former Obama economist uh, Jason Furman and economist Robert Barrow, and it did, ta- it did assume that, that at least to some degree, that debt would drive up would drive up interest rates, and they and they found boy, it was, it's even hard to find the growth over ten years. Mm. I think it was. I think it. I think the uh, level of output after or the change in annual growth overall over ten years would average zero point zero four percentage points. Yeah. And if they assume that some of the you know provisions were made were made permanent, I think particularly expensing provision uh, that it would be zero point one three percentage points. Now, that is not very much, and that, that would almost be a you know, a rounding error, I guess. Well, it'd be hard to detect. I think that's right, compared to all the other things that are affecting the economy, and that ties back into the point before. But, you know, this raises an important uh, distinction uh, that I wish more policymakers paid attention to, which is the distinction between the level of output and the growth rate. And for reasons that are not clear to me, politicians like to talk about how the growth rate will change. And the growth rate Oh, even if the tax cut works exactly as hoped, is not going to permanently change the rate of growth of output or of wages. Instead, it will temporarily boost the growth rate of output and wages until a new higher level is reached. So let's say, for example, that you took a reasonably optimistic view and, and said, oh, you know, that this um, tax package will raise output by 2% in the long run. I think that's actually more than we can realistically expect, but just take it for illustrative purposes. Then, for example, one way that might occur uh, would be for the growth rate to be 0.2% per year higher for 10 years and thereafter to be unchanged from what otherwise would have been. Um, you know, another possibility is 0.1% for 20 years and then unchanged. Of course, the actual uh, pattern is going to be, you know, different. Uh, there may be more uh, of an increase in, the, in, you know, some of the, you know, maybe five years out and then less uh, before that and after that. But whatever it is, you're talking about just a temporary change in the growth rate that causes a permanent change, 
um, in the level. But, you know, the rhetoric is just totally different from this. People talk about, oh, this is going to take us from a 2% growth rate to a 3% growth rate per year. And it's not clear, like, what do they mean, forever? Even if they mean, even if they mean for 10 years, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, 1% a year extra for 10 years would mean that the level of output would be 10% higher than otherwise would right. have been. And nobody anywhere is estimating anything remotely like that. I mean, the 2% is optimistic. 1% is probably more reasonable. 10% is just off the charts. Of course, we've seen other people talk about going from 2% to 4% growth. And uh, President Trump, in, in one speech, said he thought maybe it could be uh, 6% a year. Right. So we're obviously just the rhetoric and the reality are just, uh, you, know, too, you know, just dramatically removed from each other. And I mean, you, you know, you talk about overpromising. I think uh, it's a pretty extreme uh, situation. Right. The root of those sort of overpromises, as I sort of, uh, you know, as I sort of look at it, is really sort of the Reagan tax cuts, in which you had, the, which you had these big tax cuts, and then the economy seemed to, at least, at least once they were fully implemented, seemed to just, just take off. And yeah. I think that, I think that, and also looking at the fact that we had a very fast economy in the '60s, and people will attribute those to the Kennedy tax cuts. They so had these two very, at least on Republican circles, these two very well-known incidents of big marginal rate cuts and the economy growing, you know, pretty fast afterwards. And I think then what people are thinking, well, gee, anytime we have a big tax cut, we're either going to grow at 6% like we had in the 60s or 4% like we did after the Reagan tax cuts. And that's that's what tax cuts do. I think that is what people are thinking. And, you know, we we did see rapid growth in, in those periods and partly partly due to the tax cuts, I think. But of course, there are other factors going on as well uh, that we can't uh, really replicate today. I mean, today we have a slower growth of the working age population. We appear to have uh, a slower growth in productivity growth, at least as we measure it, uh, just the kind of um, I don't know what economists call the residual that seems to be driven by forces we don't really understand. It's not giving us as much productivity growth today as it, as it used to. Maybe that's Maybe that's partly measurement error. Maybe it's various deep economic forces going on. But we, yeah, we really can't replicate those previous experiences because those were not due solely to the tax cuts uh, that were adopted. They were due partly to that and then partly to other things. And the Reagan tax cuts, for example, were adopted uh, when the economy was in a you know, pretty severe business cycle downturn. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you'd expect that there would be somewhat rapid growth even if no tax cut had been adopted. The tax cut certainly did uh, provide extra fuel uh, for that uh, because it had a lot of investment incentives in there, uh, basically similar to the expensing provisions that are in this uh, new law. Uh, Do you think um – I don't don't want to get derailed (laughs) onto the Reagan tax cuts. We can barely figure – we're still trying to figure out about these tax cuts rather than arguing the impact of uh, of the Reagan tax cuts. Uh, But do you think that eventually those Reagan tax did change – you know, you know, productivity levels. I mean, we finally saw productivity go up in the 1990s. Do you think you can credit any of that to the to the uh, to the uh, Reagan tax cuts, either in 81 or 86? Another factor that makes this difficult, besides all the other things that are always happening in the economy, is that no tax change really lasts forever. So the 81 tax cut was pretty clearly a pro-growth tax cut. Um, and helped, you know, strengthen a recovery that would have happened anyway. We then saw a new law in 86, and it's far less clear that the 86 law was actually favorable to new investment. Um, It lowered the corporate tax rate, but at the same time, it really slowed down the depreciation allowances that companies can claim on their investments, which is also an important factor in the tax burdens on those investments. So, you know, even if the 81 law was favorable, the 86 law might well have been unfavorable. 
And so it's really very hard, you know, at this point to say what were the effects of a law that's really no longer around. Um, of course, since all laws are, you know, replaced eventually or modified, I mean, obviously that's going to be true for this new law as well. And uh, I mean, especially true since some of its provisions are set to expire. The corporate rate cut is permanent, but the expensing of equipment, for example, is temporary. Um, and so that's just another layer of uncertainty as we have to wonder uh, what uh, future Congresses and presidents will do uh, to these provisions. And that depends on many things, including, you know, which political party uh, wins future elections. But it sounds like, you know, th- that that there's a there is a the, there is a risk here that the um, that the bigger deficits might offset some maybe close to all of the, of the good thing. Yes. So then what would you tell policymakers to be doing right, right now to make sure that, 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 that the good stuff happens, that we do get more and more investment, higher productivity, and higher working, work, uh, worker wages from this tax cut? So ideally, I think what you do, I mean, ideally, you would have adopted this in a revenue neutral or budget neutral form uh, to begin with. Obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, There was talk initially by the House Republicans that they were going to do it in a revenue neutral manner. That never, you know, never came to pass. It was was jettisoned pretty early on. Uh, What do we do, you know, starting from where we are now? I think, well, you would have to go back and try to say we need, you know, some type of offsetting budgetary measures here. Uh, that we should have adopted along with the tax cut. We didn't, so now is the time to do it. I think there's you know, a couple different ways you could go on that. Back last summer, before the tax law was adopted, I mean, I offered um, a suggestion uh, that you could cut corporate taxes while raising taxes on corporate shareholders by taxing dividends and capital gains more heavily. That's not necessarily the ideal tax policy in the world, but it's, I think, pretty clear that the dividend capital gains taxes are less harmful than the corporate tax. The key reason being that the corporate tax is a penalty on investing in the United States. In contrast, if you increase taxes on the dividends and capital gains of American shareholders, that would apply regardless of what companies they held their stocks in, where those companies were chartered, where those companies did their investments, where those companies booked their profits. There wouldn't be any penalty on companies putting their investments in the United States because that tax wouldn't depend on the location of the investment. So that would be an obvious way to make up the revenue loss that would still, you know, be progressive. You would, you know, because you say, look, a corporate rate cut, a lot of that benefits, you know, the shareholders who are rich. Well, that's true. Uh, It benefits workers too, but also benefits the shareholders a lot. So if you're concerned about that, you know, raise taxes on them. Uh, on the shareholders to offset that loss. Right. You know, you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, tax codes, there's no final tax code. It's always changing. You know, the, there'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be future reforms. So, so that, that, that always happens. There's always sort of an evolution in the tax code. So you have that, which is sort of a, a constant, uh, you know, constant change. And also you have a broader fiscal situation in the United States in which we do have, yes. we have a lot more spending uh, that's going to be coming online, Medicare, Social Security, that's going to need to be paid for. So this, so the current situation seems particularly unsustainable to me. So yes, what, what is that? What is too. the tax code going to look like a generation from now? It seem, it, it would seem like that we're going to be paying higher taxes. We still may be yes. a relatively low tax country compared to other countries, but that you know the revenue as a share of GDP is going to have to be higher in the future than it has been. There's no know, traditionally. There, I think there's no real uh, doubt about that. I mean, obviously, it's mathematically and economically possible to uh, keep taxes where they are, but it's uh, would require that we you know really keep 
Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and the health insurance premium credits from growing as a share of the economy. And that means really cutting back the generosity of those uh, programs over time compared to what current law promises. Or letting the debt-GDP ratio just yeah, skyrocket. But that's that's ultimately not a sustainable option. I mean, that eventually, I think some people think it is. I think some people do think that, but they're wrong. I mean, it, it may well – you actually probably could do that longer than some people think. I mean, you know, some people there, – there are people who say, oh, like we've – you know, if we don't deal with the debt, we're going to have like disaster like a year from now. Well, unfortunately, I don't think that's in some ways I think that, you know, it might be better if we had a disaster a year from now. In reality, it may be possible to actually let the debt grow for a decade, for a couple decades, and then the disaster hits. Unfortunately, the disaster then would be much bigger than any disaster we might have now. So, I mean, we really need do need to address this. But unfortunately, it's one of those things. It's like termites eating away at your home. There's never any absolute well, When you say need. a disaster, what is that? I mean, what is that? Let's say, um, you know, let's say the debt GDP ratio doubled. I'm not sure. I, I'm guessing that's not an experiment you'd probably want <laughs> yeah. want to run. So, what is the disaster? Is it just is it just higher interest rates? Well, it's, it could be much higher interest rates and you know much depressed uh, capital formation. Right. Another possibility, which would occur at some point, nobody knows quite when, is that foreign investors would be unwilling to buy. Uh, U.S. government debt to the extent that they buy it now because they would start to be concerned about the possibility of default. They're going to buy, uh, you know. I mean, they may just consume instead. Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, it's also important to realize that just like every year that we do have this high debt, I mean, that is you know, reducing the amount of national saving we're doing and lowering the future incomes of Americans, even if there is no actual uh, crisis. Now, I think we're going to be paying more taxes in the future just because there is not a will really by anybody, Republicans or Democrats, to control Social Security and the medical programs to the extent that would, would prevent a revenue increase. And in terms of what kinds of taxes we'll be paying, I mean, my own view is that we will end up where pretty much all the other countries of the world are, is that we will have a value-added tax alongside the income tax. And I that don't think that's almost unimaginable. If I look at the current political yeah, climate, well, and which is a focus on the rich need to pay more and a value-added tax, that's that's a broad-based. That's not just a tax on rich. That's a broad oh, yeah, that's a tax. tax. It's a broad-based. Hard to imagine. It's a regressive. Or anybody else going for that? Well, it's not the first choice of either Republicans or Democrats, but I think it w- is likely to become the second choice of both, and that is what a compromise often involves. So there will come a time where Republicans will say. Well, you know, maybe, at least in principle, our preferred approach would be to to cut these Social Security and medical programs. But, you know, we would be willing to live uh, with a VAT as opposed to what we consider the worst alternative of just raising income taxes further and further. And Democrats may say, well, we would ideally like to raise the income taxes further and further, but we would be willing to accept a VAT instead of what we would consider the worst option, which is having cuts to Social Security and the medical programs. And so I think you will have a point. I mean, I do believe this will happen, but it could be 20, 30 years from now or longer, where both sides will say the VAT is actually better than the worst case options we're worried about. And so we're willing to accept it. It will have to be both parties, you know, doing it together. Neither party is ever going to take the political risk of adopting a VAT on their own. And these kinds of solutions, they always seem unthinkable until they happen. 
obviously nobody is sitting around today saying, oh, we would love to have a VAT. I mean, what a you know splendid thing it would be to have a VAT. It will arise because everyone accepts that it's necessary. There's a um, interesting parallel to this that I often cite. Uh, in 1981, the Senate voted on a non-binding resolution saying it is the sense of the Senate that Social Security benefits should remain exempt from individual income tax, which they were at the time. That resolution carried 98 to 0. So you would say, boy, there is no prospect, no conceivable prospect that Social Security benefits would ever be taxed. And I mean, and why would they be? That's so politically unpopular. That's politically toxic. Well, I think, you know, history tells us, of course, that in 1983, just two years later, uh, Social Security benefits were made partially taxable. And it was done by bipartisan agreement. And it wasn't done because anybody was jumping up and down and saying, we love the idea of doing that. It was done in order to head off things that were considered worse as they were trying to rescue the Social Security system from insolvency. And so people sometimes tell me, well, there can't be a VAT because the Senate adopted a non-binding resolution in 2010 saying that a VAT was bad, and it carried by that overwhelming um, 85 to 13 margin. Um, or 83 to 15. And I say, well, that is a pretty lopsided margin. But 98 to zero is more lopsided still. And uh, that resolution didn't. Really... Well, do you think it would take, again, some sort of some sort of external catalyst? Like we actually started seeing, you know, rates going up and, and you know, and growth staying slow and no and lower capital information, business investment. And it would, it would take it would take something. I think so. I, unfortunately, I think it would. It, it would pro- it quite likely would require some type of incipient crisis. The other possibility, at least in theory, is that you could just have the two parties come together and say, we know we've got a long-term problem here that's eventually going to have to be addressed. We know that it's better to address it sooner rather than later. We don't have a crisis yet. We actually ought to address it now so that there never will be one. And so let's come together and find a compromise that neither of us love, but that we're willing to live. But directionally, we seem to not be. We seem we, to go in the other at direction. At the moment, this does not seem to be how Washington is operating. So, you know, we can, I think, keep hoping, but uh, this is, you know, we're clearly not going to see that kind of thing happen in the near future. This is a very unfair question. If you don't answer it, that's fine. I'm curious when you when you when you talk to um, you know Democrats or Republicans on each side, I'm sure there are like things they believe how taxes work that drive you crazy and aren't true. Like what would be like the most common like myth on each side about 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 taxes? Think, think uh, just you know maybe maybe the screen. But I think first when I think about Democrats, I think that you know that it really doesn't matter what that top rate. Whether you could take that top rate to 80 percent and we would be fine. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people on the Democratic side do seem to believe that incentive effects are either extremely small or even non-existent. And there is certainly a debate about the size of those effects, but it just seems hard to deny that they do exist and that they will become important if you push the tax rates too high. I mean, interestingly, many Democrats accept that incentives are important in some respects. They'll say, for example, you know, that uh, you know, the companies engage in tax shelters to reduce their tax liability, which is clearly true and which proves that, you know, people care about their tax liabilities. But then they, you know, refuse to accept the idea that people might change their work or their saving or their investment behavior um, in, in order to lower their tax burdens. And it's just kind of hard, you know, to, uh, to reconcile those two with each other. Even if you do think that those kind of real decisions are not as sensitive, they're not as responsive, it's still hard to see how there could be, you know, no responsiveness there at all. On the Repu- well, maybe, we, maybe we've stumbled trippingly into the, uh, into the Republic. Would they think those incentive effects are too big? Yeah. Well, I, I, th- that's, of course, right. <laughs> I mean, I, you, you hear 
Republicans who will, I mean, they'll certainly claim that the effects of taxes are, are very big. It's not always clear if they really are even linking them to incentives. Again, you hear almost this implicit claim you know, that if we, you know, give people, give companies money, for example, they'll just, you know, hire more people or invest more regardless of what the profitability is on their future investments. Uh, but through through one channel or another, they expect, you know, very big, unrealistically large effects. We've already talked about some of the predictions made about this new law that are just, you know, way bigger than could possibly happen. Uh, you often hear the claim that a lot of uh, tax cuts will, quote unquote, pay for themselves, that they'll cause so much additional economic activity that the revenue feedback from that activity will fully offset the direct revenue loss caused by the tax cut so that you end up making money for the federal government or at least not losing any money. Now, of course, that is theoretically possible, and it would happen at extreme rates. I mean, if a country had a 99% flat rate income tax and lowered it to 98%, I believe that they almost certainly would collect more revenue at the 98% rate than they did at the 99% rate. But the idea that this type of effect would occur at today's tax levels you know, just requires responses that are much bigger than statistical evidence would support. And I think much bigger than, than common sense would indicate if you just asked people how they themselves would react to the tax cut. Just finishing up here, there's sort of a new tax that's uh, been in the news a lot lately. They're, they're import taxes, otherwise known as, as tariffs. How much work have you done uh, looking at the impact of tariffs on uh, economic growth and decisions that people make? Is that something you're going to have to be doing a lot more research <laughs> well, on in, in the future? Well, I think uh, the economics profession definitely needs to focus on the tariffs. And I think people who have specialized in international trade are talking about those. And I think, obviously, people who have developed the specialized knowledge will need to take the lead in really documenting the specific impacts of the tariffs. But I think that all economists, um, including me, uh, have a good general grasp of what tariffs do, and they're really destructive on almost you know every uh, level uh, because in the long run imports and exports you know balance each other. Putting tariffs on imports is going to uh, to drive down exports as well, which is usually the opposite of what the supporters of the tariffs want. Um, and you don't necessarily have to wait a long time for general economic forces and exchange rate movements to do that. In a lot of cases, your trading partners will retaliate for the tariffs, which actually speeds up that effect. Uh, and we're seeing that right now. Um, of course, uh, tariffs don't just harm consumers uh, who have to pay more for, for the goods that they uh, buy from abroad. It does do that for sure. But it also harms many businesses who are importing um, equipment and supplies from abroad, and they have to pay more. And so ironically, the tariffs really undermine domestic production. Uh, companies are trying to make things in America, uh, which the tariff supporters like. Uh, but in order to make things in America, they can't get all of the equipment and the supplies and inputs they need here. Uh, they need to get some of them from abroad. And then they find tariffs. Well, uh, the, well people on Twitter say, say just the opposite. When I, when, I, when I tweet about this, they say, listen, so we, sh we should just make more stuff here. We should, just be, we should be dependent on ourselves. I respond, uh, that is the North Korean style yes, of economics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that is the best example where we just do it all our, our, ourselves. But I think they, they, they don't quite buy that, we, that, we, that there are useful things we get from abroad and inputs. And it really does miss the whole point about the gains from trade, which is that you know, we, each country, like each person, benefits 
benefits if instead of doing trying to do everything for themselves, they do the things that they have the biggest comparative advantage in and then buy uh, from other people the things that they have a comparative advantage um, in producing. I mean, I run a very uh, large uh, trade deficit myself uh, with my local grocery store because I buy a lot from them and they've actually never bought anything from me. Um, and I mean, obviously, I could try to eliminate that trade deficit uh, by growing my own food. Um, I don't really think that's going to be a very you know, productive way for me to spend my time. I think it's uh, better for me to spend my time being an economist and then taking the earnings that I have as an economist and going to the grocery store and, and paying them uh, for the food that they can more efficiently uh, provide to me. It's tempting, I guess, when you look at a country of 300 million people to say, okay, well, you know, yeah, well, you know one person can't do everything for themselves, but a country of 300 million people, we, we could do everything for ourselves. Well, I don't know if that even would be theoretically possible, but uh, it's clear like that would be an enormously expensive and inefficient way uh, to try to, uh, to uh, run an economy. Uh, because even if we hypothetically could do everything at some enormous cost, it would really be vastly better uh, if we let other people produce those things for us and could buy it from them at much lower cost. My guest today has been Alan Diard. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you.